Good afternoon and welcome to the Wednesday edition of Bible Quest. I am Jeff Smelser in Exton, Pennsylvania, where we have sunshine and snow beginning to melt. And with me is Chase Byers, who is in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. Chase, good afternoon. Good afternoon, Jeff. Good to be on today. And Joe Works is not with us today. Uh, he is traveling today. And uh, so Lord willing, he'll be able to be back with us today. We're going to talk about uh, 1 Corinthians. I titled it, Chase, I titled it uh, Paul's First Letter to the Saints at Corinth. And maybe that sounds... Um, Maybe that sounds pretentious or something because normally yeah. just you like first Corinthians. Yeah, you you just picked the longest way to absolutely title that whole thing. So, but, but you know, okay. I mean, really, I mean, we say First Corinthians, and if we know what it is, we know what it is. But if we don't know what it is, it's First Corinthians. What does that mean? Well, yes, no, that, that's actually a great point because I've had Bible studies with people in the past that, as you talk about the Book of Ephesians, and you say, so this is to a group of people in Ephesus. And it blows their mind. And it's not because they're stupid or anything. It's just they didn't know that that was actually an actual place that it was being written to. And we don't like title our handwritten letters anymore. Like this isn't like when I'm writing to somebody, I don't go, you know, first so-and-so, you know, that, that's just not the way it works. So sometimes it's good to give it the longer version of the name so that people understand where and, it's And of course, from. to be sure, Paul didn't title his first Corinthians. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> As a matter of fact, when we look at the beginning of first Corinthians, now, I guess let's just set the stage a little bit. Paul has been in the city of Corinth, which is in Ath which is in Greece, about 50 miles west of Athens. Um, and he, it, it is a newly reestablished city. Um, mm -hmm. It's been established as, as a Roman city uh, in Greece. Uh, Paul had visited there in AD 51, or uh, roughly a half century after Jesus was born, roughly 20 years after Jesus was crucified. And he had preached the gospel there. Uh, now uh, he is in Ephesus, modern day Turkey, in about AD 55, probably the fall of AD 55. And he is writing a letter to the church at Corinth. And he is going to go there. And he mentions that he is on his way there. And there are some things that he is going to say to them in advance of his going back there to see them, having heard from someone about what's going on there is that a fair introduction to the letter absolutely uh chapter 16 8 points out he's in ephesus and chloe is mentioned as early as chapter 1 down in verse 11 saying that there's been a report from chloe to paul about how the church is doing and so the big theme as we go through corinthians or first corinthians rather is unity there, there's a problem with the brethren being united and paul is going to try and get them to rethink the blessings that they have to unite them in jesus and as a matter of fact, right where you're talking in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 11, where he mentions that he's heard from some of those of the household of Chloe, what he has heard is that there are divisions in the church at Corinth. Yep. And, you know, Chase, I don't know what you think about this. When he says, now this I mean that each one of you says, I'm a Paul, and I have Apollos, and I have Cephas, and I have Christ. Uh, he, he is, he's painting a picture of people dividing up into cliques as to whom they follow. Uh, some people think that they actually were following uh, either Apollos or Paul or Peter or Christ. And that's kind of an interesting question. Other people think that he's just using himself and Apollos and Peter as examples, and they were really following other people. What do you think about that? 
Yeah, you know, that second view you just um, introduced, I hadn't considered until a few months ago, someone had had run that past me, but um, I'd always taken it to be the first that there, are, these are some literal teachers that what they would have ran into, uh, certainly Apollos, certainly Cephas, and obviously Paul, the Christ, I didn't really know what to do with that. But that second opinion, that second view on that, that you had, you had just expounded on, isn't it confirmed or not confirmed, but isn't there something a little bit later in Corinthians? I can't place my eyes sure, on it right chapter, now. That It's chapter four, verse six. And that's why some people think that he's not really meaning they're, they're following. Uh, the fig, yeah. The figuratively applied to myself and Apollos for your sakes. Right. I, I don't feel strongly one way or the other. I'm kind of inclined to think that he really is saying they really were following Paul, Cephas, Apollos, Christ. The, the interesting part is what would be wrong with following Christ? That, that's what he wants them to do, isn't it? But if you think about it, what? Oh, I was just going to say it's the seclusion. It's, it's not so much who you're following is a problem, but it's how you're viewing others as a result of who baptized them. That's, that's right. Because he problem. gets down to, in chapter 1, verse 17, uh, Christ sent me not to baptize, but to preach the gospel. And, and he talks in the verses just before that about He's glad he didn't baptize more of them, or they'd be all saying that they were followers of him. And so if you think about it, if they were if they were saying, well, I, Paul baptized me, so I'm his disciple. And somebody says, well, Apollos baptized me, so I'm his disciple. And, and then you say, well, how does Christ fit into this? Christ was baptizing through his disciples. You remember John chapter 4 and verse 1 mm -hmm. says um, that when the Pharisees saw that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, though Jesus himself didn't baptize, but his right. disciples, but it was under the, under the, the, the specific immediate present authority of Christ with his disciples. So you could imagine there might've been Jews who had been in Judea when Jesus was in that region or in Galilee, who had been baptized of Jesus through his disciples and they were, you know, saying, hey, I'm better than you because I actually was there when Jesus was on earth. And he, you know, he was there standing watching when one of his disciples baptized me. So maybe that it would be something like that. I don't know, but maybe we don't want to spend too much time on that. We do have a comment. Do you see the comment we have? Yeah, he, uh, Pat is just commenting that it's possible that in Paul saying that some of you are saying I'm of Christ, it just that's simply him saying that's the right idea. Some of you have the right idea, but several of you do not. Um, and so I think that's a possibility. He goes ahead to say Christ isn't divided. He's, he makes it a rhetorical question. Is Christ divided? Uh, was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized into the name of Paul? And of course, the answer to all of those things is no. But what this really gets to is the problem of exalting men and men's wisdom and that's really the problem. It's not just a superficial thing where people were tending to, you know, identify themselves with Apollos. That's a problem. But at the root of it is they are really thinking in terms of human wisdom and putting too much stock in human wisdom. And so that's the idea that he develops in the rest of chapter one and chapter two and, and even on into chapter three and the first part of chapter four. Anything you want to observe as we look at those chapters? No, I think what Paul's going to do just from here is make them realize just how foolish they're being, um, because everything that they know is based off of their own foolishness, and it all points to the wisdom of God, and that's what they need to put their trust in. I mentioned that Corinth is not far from Athens, about 50 miles from Athens. Athens had been the home of uh, Aristotle, Socrates, Plato, 
um, a center of learning and philosophy. Um, you may remember in Acts 17, our, our listeners may remember that uh, Luke said that there were men there who loved nothing better than just to hear some new thing. Right. And so here, Paul writes to the church at Corinth, and he says this in verse 20 of chapter one, where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this world? Hath not God made, the, made foolish the wisdom of the world? He says in verse 26, behold your calling, brethren, that not many wise after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. And then he goes ahead to show how God chose the foolish things of the world, a man uh -huh. being crucified and dying. Right. Uh, those are the things that God used to save people not man's intellect. And then Paul himself in chapter two says in verse four, my speech talking about when he was there in Corinth, my speech and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power. Mm -hmm. Your faith should not stand in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. When he says chase in demonstration of the spirit and of power, what's he talking about there? And um, at the end two, of verse four. verse four, and yeah, well, it wasn't anything Paul was speaking that should be impressive to them. It wasn't any particular way he put it that should make them realize the power of the cross, but it's just the simple message of it that would be, would be powerful. Well, and, and remember Jesus promised to the apostles, you will receive power uh, when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. Uh, Paul later talks about the signs of an apostle demonstration of the spirit hebrews chapter 2 it talks about the word being confirmed by gifts of the holy spirit and miracles and such i believe what paul is saying here is i didn't come and give you some philosophical reason why you should believe that jesus is the christ i didn't come and give you some philosophical reason as to why you should believe in resurrection from the dead i came and i demonstrated with power from the holy spirit that what I was telling you was from God. I think of Nicodemus, where he mm -hmm. says, Rabbi, we know that you're, that you're a teacher come from God, for no man can do these signs that you do except God be with him. So that's, that's the, the force behind Paul's presentation to the Corinthians. It was the miracles that he did, and that's what confirmed that his message was from God, not because they could study it and say, you know what, this is wiser than Confucius. I think sometimes we make the mistake of trying to compare. There's nothing wrong with comparing the word of God to the philosophies of men. But I think sometimes we go overboard to the point that we are, we are saying, look how you can use your reason to compare the gospel philosophy with the philosophy of this philosopher. And you can evaluate and see, wow, this one is wiser than that one. Therefore, I believe this one. The reason it's wiser is because it's from God. And the reason we know it's from God is because it was miraculously demonstrated to be from God. I think that's what Paul is saying here. Okay, cool. So we come to chapter, uh, well, we've spent 10 minutes here, which means we should be through the first two chapters. So let's get on to chapter three. Paul alludes to uh, Apollos's, oh no, we're supposed to do three chapters per minute. Is that what we said? Three, three chapters per three, or one chapter every three minutes. One chapter every three minutes. Oh, okay. All right. So <laughs> we should be we should be almost done with chapter four at this point. <laughs> All right. So real quickly in chapter three, Paul talks about himself and Apollos. Apollos had followed Paul 
not immediately, but after Paul left Corinth, uh, Apollos had come there. And uh, so Paul says, look, what are Apollos and I? We're just ministers, that is mm -hmm. servants. Yeah. Uh, you shouldn't be following after us. And in chapter four, then um, he kind of hammers that point home. So that's the first four chapters in a nutshell without getting all of the nut. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So now Paul is going to turn his attention to not only some division, but some more specific problems that this local church is having. And so in chapter five, there seems to be this scenario. It doesn't seem to be, there is a scenario here where one of the members has his father's wife. Now, I don't know if that is a blood relative or if it is his, his stepmom. It's not clear in the text, but what he's doing is clearly wrong. He's been sleeping with this woman that's not his own. And Paul's rebuke isn't only that that's been going on. Of course, he's condemning that action. But his bigger rebuke is the fact that this church hasn't done anything about it. They have just kind of been okay with it. And um, in fact, in verse two, he says, you've become arrogant and yeah. not mourned instead, so that the one who's done this deed would be removed from your midst. In an older translation in the American Standard is what I'm looking at, where yours says arrogant, he says you're puffed up. And that's a better translation, in my opinion. It's interesting, later on, he, when he talks about love in the famous passage in 1 Corinthians 13, one of the things he's going to say is love is not puffed up. That's right. Yeah, and so I don't know if it is uh, the, the case that this group has become tolerant and almost have started bragging on themselves that mm -hmm. they are tolerant of sin like this. Oh, you know, we, we just don't get after anybody here. And uh, Paul is jumping on them for that, saying, no, you cannot tolerate these kinds of things. And, and that's certainly an attitude we see in churches today that advertise themselves um, as being uh, inclusive. Um, and and mm -hmm. what they mean by that is we're not going to condemn you if you're practicing homosexuality. We're not going to condemn you if you're in your third marriage. We're not going to condemn you if, you know, whatever they might, might want to talk about, it's all okay. And they think they are being more loving. And Paul says you're being puffed up. And he says, love is not puffed up. Yeah, that's exactly when right. When we exalt our, our tolerance, when we decide we're more tolerant than God, we're more righteous than God, we're too tolerant. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's not love. And so what they needed to do, Paul uses the expression, deliver such one unto Satan, uh, two, two goals for the destruction of the flesh, the works of the flesh that are evident in his life, and that the spirit may be saved. Uh, really, the hope is that this man will realize the gravity of his sin in the words of Paul's letter to the Thessalonians, uh, be ashamed, and that then he would turn from his sin. But in the meantime, you can't have this kind of sinful influence accepted in the congregation. Today, that people would say that's being judgmental. And Paul, in the next few verses, is going to say, look, I'm not telling you, you you're responsible for everybody in the world, their, their actions, and that you have to go about judging everybody in the world. If, if I were to say you're responsible for everybody in the world, and you can't associate with anybody who does these things in the world, then you'd have to go out of the world. But he says, as far as the church is concerned, you do have a responsibility there. Those outside, God will deal with. But part of the responsibility of people in Christ who are worshiping, working together, is to hold one another accountable and encourage one another on the right path. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. And uh, I mean, there's also just the, the bigger issue. If you're letting this guy's sin slip through, what other sins are you letting slip through as well? There, there's, uh, and that's his whole point in verse six and seven. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough? You, you got to get a hold of this problem now 
um, before it becomes a bigger problem in the rest of the church. Where does that leaven figure come from? It comes from all the way over back, going back to the book of Exodus with the Passover, um, where you have that whole idea of, of um, have eating unleavened bread because you're leaving in haste and going quickly uh, to, to get out of the city. Leaven is yeast, and they would eat unleavened bread with the Passover, and the Passover lamb that they sacrifice foreshadows Christ. Paul calls Christ our Passover here. In the Old Testament, they could not keep the feast if they had leaven uh, in their houses, and they would be cut off. And similarly, what he's saying is here is if we allow the leaven of sinful influence, he says, uh, wickedness and malice, if we allow that in our midst, then we're not going to be able to keep our feast with Christ, our Passover lamb. Yeah. So, okay. So then, chapter six. Goes, yeah, I'm sorry. Oh, no, I was going to say, were you moving into chapter six? So chapter six, then, is not really a new subject. It's related. Because yes. the last two verses of, of chapter five were, what have I to do with judging them that are without? Mm -hmm. Don't you judge them that are within, them that are without, God judges. Put away the wicked man from among yourselves. Now, he's going to continue this idea of judging, holding people accountable, dealing with problems within the congregation. And he's going to turn his attention to the situation where... Um, somebody is upset with his brother in Christ. And instead of them being able to work it out within the, within the congregation and turn to somebody within the congregation who can help them judge what is right, he's going to go to a court of law and have somebody who is not a Christian, who is not righteous before God, tell God's people what is right. That's just bizarre when you think about it. Yeah, and uh, I love the way that he puts that in um, in verse five. I say this to your shame. It is so that there is th there is not among you one wise man uh, who will be able to decide between his brothers. But brother goes to law with brother, and before the unbelievers, I, th I think he's like, I've already explained to you all. You're not as wise as you think you are. But by the way, if you are as wise as you think you are, there's not someone there that can actually help you all figure this out. And the um, irony of going to an unbeliever who is not righteous. And having him judge what is righteous between two brethren, right. he highlights that by saying in verse 9, don't you know that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? These people that you're asking to judge your situation, they're not even going to inherit the kingdom of God. And he yep, goes on so, to talk about those who practice various sins. They're not going to inherit the kingdom of God. And then he turns back to Corinthians and says, now you were those same things. You did those same things. Uh, the things he's talking about, fornication, idolatry, adultery, homosexuality, and so on. He says, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and the spirit of our God. One, Anything one else last, right there? Oh, just one last thing. I love verse seven. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be defrauded? Yeah. It, it, at, the, at the cost of maintaining your relationship with your brethren and not letting the world see this go on, why wouldn't you just take the wrong instead? I love that Paul is even saying, if you have to, let it go. Which is a needed admonition to the church at Corinth, yeah. given the divisions, the disunity we already see. Right. They yeah. had problems with getting on the same page, and, and this is another manifestation of that. Then we come to chapter 7, and in chapter 7, uh, oh, well, I, I guess we should say at the end yeah, of just chapter, a, Go ahead. 
Yeah, just a little bit of the end of chapter six is helpful to realize because he's talking to the brethren about going to prostitutes. Corinth would have been a horrible city for all kinds of traffic and all kinds of people coming and going. And so naturally prostitution would have been popular there. And apparently some of the church was struggling with going to prostitutes. And Paul has to explain to them why that's sinful, um, why that's not right for them to do. And I love how he ends this in verse uh, 19. Or do you not know that, the, that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, who you have from God, and that you're not your own? You don't get to just live like you want to. You have the Spirit of God in you, so you cannot join yourself with a prostitute. Um, that relationship is only meant for you and your wife. Which, which is the lead into chapter seven. Which, which comes back to sexual sin, which is where this discussion started at the beginning of chapter five. Exactly. Sexual sin. And they apparently were trying to justify fornication, illicit sexual relations. And that's that's what's going on in the verse 13 of chapter six, meats for the belly and belly for meats. That was right. a metaphor for it's natural. My body was made for this, so it's all right if I do this. And Paul says, no, your body was not made for fornication, but for the Lord. And he ends up concluding this section saying, uh, you are not your own. You were bought with a price. Mm -hmm. Glorify God, therefore, in your body. Amen. So chapters five and six, take this sexual sin in the congregation, talk about the need to hold one another accountable. Don't be afraid to judge one another. That's a responsibility you have. Uh, as a matter of fact, when you have conflicts, you shouldn't be going to people outside to render judgment in your midst. And then he comes back to sexual sin and he says, look, you belong to God and mm -hmm. glorify God in your body, which brings us to chapter seven. Yeah. And it's kind of cool because in chapter seven, he'll start this new type of, of subtitling where he'll say now concerning the things about which you wrote. Yeah. It is good for a man not to touch a woman. And it would appear at this point, Paul has left his agenda and is now trying to talk to them about some of the questions that they might have had. So he'll do this in chapter you. seven. Uh, yeah, he'll do this in seven, eight, 12, and 16. Yeah. So they had written him, and it does. It sounds like from this point on, he just goes down their list of topics that mm -hmm. they'd written him about. Yep. And one is about marriage. And what, what do we see in chapter seven? What does he say? The overwhelming point in chapter seven, it's a long chapter, but Paul is just making the case that because of the present distress, he would encourage everybody, if they're single, to remain single. But he gives a lot of caveats. If you're married, you need to stay in that marriage. You do not need to get divorced. You, you need to stay together. That's a commitment you made. And if you're really going to burn with passion and desire, it would be better for you to get married in that situation. But if you can, remain single. And that's painting with a broad brush, but that's kind of his whole point. And so Paul is, is passionate about it because he was single himself at the time he wrote this. Yeah. So is Paul fundamentally opposed to marriage? Does he see marriage as a less holy state? I don't, I don't think so. No. No, we see in other letters, for example, in Ephesians, he looks at the relationship between a man and a woman, the marriage relationship, and the becoming one flesh, and he compares that to the relationship between Christ and the church, um, and he talks about it being from God. So, so it's not that he's fundamentally opposed to marriage, but you mentioned there is a distress, a present distress, some situation in Corinth, and he says, you're going through this you know what, you can, you can get through this more easily if you're not having to be concerned not only about yourself, but also about a spouse. Yeah. Yeah, I think that, that gets it pretty good. Chapter eight, this is the next now concerning. You know, mm -hmm. the translation I'm looking at at the beginning of chapter seven, you mentioned the beginning of chapter eight, the beginning of chapter 12. You see this now concerning. How Did yours use the phrase now concerning? Yes, sir. 
there's another translation. It may say something like now in regard to or something. I don't know. But each of these letters, each of these chapters or sections, not chapters, each of these sections begins with a phrase similar to that. This one introduces a topic that he discusses, spiritual gifts, at least chapters, well, I'm sorry, it, it is chapters 8, 9, and 10, and... Um, I think there's one in the middle of chapter 10, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, I don't think so. Uh, I'm mistaken. Never mind. Sorry. Yeah. So, but and, and I've become increasingly um, inclined to think that chapter 11 also belongs in this section. But let's summarize chapters 8, 9, and 10. <clears throat> yeah, so in chapter 8, um, he's going to talk about things that are sacrificed to idols um, and how they have this situation where some might be willing to eat something that has been sacrificed to an idol, where there are some who are not comfortable eating something that's sacrificed to an idol. And Paul's whole point really in chapter eight and chapter and in part of chapter nine is for them to think about their brother's conscience. Um, and so if you know it's going to cause your brother to stumble, if you're eating meat, then just stop. Don't do it. Just stay away from it and vice versa as well. And so he's really, again, trying to pull this group that has been so divided over so many things. He's trying to pull them together by getting them to think of each other. Yeah. And that, and that is, that is the, the point he stresses in chapter eight. I want to, I want to define this just a little bit. When he talks about things sacrificed to idols, that phrase in English represents one word in Greek. And, and it's a word that Paul uses here to refer to the activity of participating in the idol feast, going down to the idol temple and participating in the idol feast. Later on, he's going to talk about meat that ends up in the, in, the, in the marketplace and might have at one time or another been sacrificed to idols, but that's not in view here. Uh, what he's talking about is actually participating in the idol feast at the temple. For example, in chapter 8 and uh, verse 10, for if a man sees you who has knowledge sitting at meat in an idol's temple, Will not his conscience, if he is weak, be emboldened to eat things sacrificed to idols? So we might find it shocking that there were Christians in the church at Corinth who were even wanting to go down to the idol temple and participate in the idol feast. And secondly, we might find it shocking that if they're actually doing that, the only thing Paul would find wrong with that is that they're not showing concern about the example that they set for somebody else. The fact is that's not all of his concern. He's going to come back to it in chapter 10 and say, you just yeah. can't do it. Right. But to the point that some in Corinth were wanting to do this, their idea was, I know that this idol's not anything. And so the fact that I know in my head it's not anything means that I'm not guilty if I go participate yeah. in it. It's like I've mentally got my fingers crossed behind my back when I participate in this idolatrous ritual. But I do think it's really cool that Paul's going to give kind of two reasons why they shouldn't be doing this. But the first one he appeals to is think about your brother, think about their situation. I just, I really, I think that's a good encouragement for us to think about. That's right. Um, he's going to outright condemn it, but at first think about it. And that's, but that's also consistent, as you've already said, with the whole problem in the church at Corinth. He could have started in just said, idolatry is wrong, but the underlying problem in everything that we see in first Corinthians is a lack of love for one another. Right. And so that's where he starts. 
he says in verse two, if any man thinks that he knows anything, he knows not yet as he mm -hmm. ought to know. But if any man loves God, the same is known by him. Or going back to verse one, concerning things sacrificed to idols, we know that we all have knowledge. You claim that you know that this idol is nothing, so you're okay. But he says knowledge puffs up. There's that puff up. Does your say is arrogant? It says arrogant, yeah. Yeah. So, and then and he says, but love edifies. So right. I, I think you're right. It's important that Paul started with that. Your attitude is right. wrong. That's that's what he's saying. Your attitude's wrong. Well, and then the cool thing he does in chapter nine is he's going to use himself as an example to illustrate the point that he's just exactly. made. Exactly. He's going to talk about his role as a gospel preacher and how he has a right to certain things um, and specifically taking funds for doing his preaching and teaching. This is a very biblical thing. It's a very biblical practice. We saw it in other places of scripture, but to the Corinthians, he didn't take a dime from them. Um, he was always with, withholding from them, or he, excuse me, he wouldn't, he wouldn't take from them, but he was especially big on working with his own hands to provide for himself. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And Paul will go on to make the point that, you know, I could have told you all to give me, I, I could have made this happen, but I didn't. I let go of that liberty of mine for the sake of you all. Yeah. And so, so he started out in chapter eight. You got an attitude problem on this right. subject. Chapter nine, look, you need to be willing to forego what you think is your right. I give up some rights that I have. Chapter 10, now he comes back to it and he says, flee idolatry. Um, and, and he says at the end of chapter 10, he's going to, or in the middle of chapter 10, he's going to say, you cannot, you cannot participate, participate at the idol temple or the idol table and at the table of the Lord, the Lord's exactly. Supper. You cannot have it both ways. In the first part of chapter 10, he goes through and talks about the Israelites and he draws a parallel between the Old Testament Israelites and, and the Corinthians. The Old Testament Israelites were baptized unto Moses in the cloud and the sea. They came through the, the sea, a wall of water on either side and cloud above them. And uh, that compares to the, to the Corinthians baptism. And the Israelites had a spiritual food and a spiritual drink, the manna and the water from the rock. And that compares to the Corinthians participation in the Lord's Supper. So you think that you've been baptized, eat the Lord's Supper, that you can do whatever you want now. Well, the Israelites thought that. And among the things they wanted to do was idolatry. And what happened? They didn't make it into their promised land. So he says in chapter 10 and verse 11, these things, the things written about the Israelites, happened to them by way of example. They're written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the ages come. Wherefore, let him that thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. And then verse 14, he says, flee from idolatry. Mm -hmm. We have a little bit of an appendix at the end of chapter 10, don't we? Where he does then say, okay, now that we've made that clear, you just can't participate in meat sacrifice to idols. And again, I like the bookends. You pointed out his uh, his whole thing about edification at the beginning, uh, but love edifies at the beginning yeah. of chapter eight. Then in verse 23 of chapter 10, all things are lawful, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful, but not all things edify. Right, right. Uh, so right, I, I think right. that, that's a cool book <laughs> right. to see. Yeah. Yeah, they were so hung up on their, what they knew, they weren't edifying anybody. So- exactly. Then at the end of chapter 10, he does deal with kind of a tangentially related subject. Okay, what about meat that ends up in the marketplace? You don't know where it came from. And with some caveats, you use the word caveat a little bit, bit ago, with some caveats, he basically says, don't worry about it. If we're talking about meat in the marketplace and you don't know where it came from before it was in the marketplace, it's meat. Don't worry about it. 
But when it comes to eating in the idol temple, participating in idol feasts, you can't do that. That gets us to chapter 11, Chase. Uh, chapter 11, there are two topics in chapter 11, aren't they? And at first glance, they're unrelated. Yeah, and I don't know exactly how to tie chapter 10 and 11 together. I think he's just moving on to something different, if I'm not. Would you agree with that? I've really begun to think chapter 11 might ought to be seen as related to, to chapters 8, 9, and 10. I'll go with you. Just take me there. All right. So at the end of chapter 10, when he finished up his message, you're lacking love in this thing about meat sacrifice to idols, and you're compromising, which you can't do. You cannot participate in idolatry. Then he has like a little appendix. And, and his appendix is, what about meat that ends up in the marketplace? If the first half of chapter 11 weren't there, verses 1 through 16, where he talks about the covering, okay. the head covering, and it went straight into the Lord's Supper, you would probably look at that and say, well, you know, when he was talking about things sacrificed to idols, he said you cannot participate in the Lord's table, the Lord's Supper, and the table of demons or the table of idols. You can't do both. And then he had a little appendix about meat in the marketplace. It would make sense then to say, okay, now, since I brought up the Lord's Supper, let me talk to you about what you're doing wrong with the Lord's Supper. Yeah. But the thing is, we do have those 16 verses at the beginning of chapter 11. But yeah. what if that whole discussion about the head covering is prompted because of certain practices that were associated with idolatry. There were some head covering rituals, both covering and uncovering, associated with the various idolatrous practices. It's hard to find one that correlates perfectly with what Paul describes or implies is going on here, namely women having their head uncovered or cutting off their hair perhaps, or cutting their hair short, or men being covered, it's hard to find something that corresponds precisely to that. Although I, I'm doing some work, I'm not going to go into it in detail here because I don't want to leave the impression that I can make a stronger case than I can, but I'm looking into some idolatrous practices that did exist in Corinth that had to do with cutting hair. Um, so, so that's a possibility. But without wasting time talking about something we don't know, what he ends up saying in chapter 11 is that, uh, you know, there's a, a relationship, God, the father, then the son, and then man, yeah. and then the, the woman. And, and there is a reflection of that in whether they had their heads covered or not. We could debate whether that covering is a garment or whether that covering is hair or what. We don't have time to do that in a quick run through 1 Corinthians. We get to the second half of 1 Corinthians chapter 11, and he is talking about the Lord's Supper, and how would you sum that up? Uh, quit using it as an excuse to get drunk and eat too much, yeah. and, and use it for what the Lord established it to be in the first place. Right. And so Paul quotes from Jesus in verses 23 through 25 as to what the Lord's Supper's true purpose and intent, intent was, and then he just reassures them to practice that, stay with that. Don't add anything, just, just leave it at that. Um, and so that would be my way of summing and once up. Once again, once again, we see the problem 
the basic fundamental lack of love, disunity, clickishness that we have at Corinth yes. manifesting itself in their abuse of the Lord's Supper. Absolutely. Yeah. So some have some food and some others do not. And because of that, there is this division, which I think is why Paul eventually says, whenever you come together, wait for one another. Um, you know, wait to see is, is some of my more poor brethren not have the the emblems for the Lord's Supper? Do I need to share what I have with them so that there's unity? Right. All right. Then we get to chapter 12. And at the beginning of chapter 12, we've got another now concerning. So we had now concerning the things wherever you wrote in chapter seven, he talked about the marriage relationship yep. and getting married or being single. Then we had now concerning uh, things sacrificed to idols at the beginning of chapter eight. And we had a, a discussion, a lengthy discussion of that. Now we get to chapter 12 and he says, now concerning spiritual gifts. And again, now we've got three chapters where he's going to talk about spiritual gifts. Um, and each chapter kind of has its own focus. So chapter 12, what does he do as he talks about spiritual gifts? Well, the first thing he wants them to realize is that all those gifts are given from the Lord. Uh, th those are things that the spirit has given and they're meant to be done for the common good, it says in verse seven. And so just, they need to have a focus that these works that are that you all have been blessed with, they're meant for God's purposes, not your own ego. Um, and he says, whatever gift that. we're talking about, they're all from the same God or the same spirit, which exactly. again gets back to this disunity. They were, you know, some of the Corinthians had this gift, some of them had that gift. And in their state of disunity, disharmony, and lack of love for one another, they're looking at these gifts as a competitive thing. Right. Paul says it's all from the same spirit, which is what leads him into talking about this idea of having one body, being a part of one body and not being separate members of different bodies. But we're all the, of the body of Jesus Christ. Verse 27 of chapter 12, you're a Christ body and individual members of it. That puts that's, it into perspective. That's right. He takes the human physical human body, talks about how it has a lot of different parts in it but they're all important, even if they have different jobs. So also in the body of Christ, you may have different gifts. They're all important, but don't get to competing with one another about mm -hmm. it. Uh, and then he says, there's something that, that's even more important than all these spiritual gifts. You know, as you go through 1 Corinthians 12, you start to get a hint that maybe tongue speaking was the thing. Oh, yeah. Corinthians especially prayed. Yeah, I think so. I, for whatever reason, that was kind of the popular gift at the time. And he'll say a few more things about tongue speaking. But yeah, that, I actually I agree with you on that. And I think that we see that, for example, in verses 28 through 29 and 30, where he kind of goes through a litany of, of gifts and concludes with that one. You know, verse 28, God has set some in the church, first apostles, secondly, prophets, thirdly, teachers, then miracles, gifts, healing helps governments, different kinds of tongues. It's kind of interesting. He puts it it's at the last. list. It's, it's at the very last. Yeah. yeah. And then verse 29, are all apostles, are all prophets, are all teachers? The answers to those are obviously no. Are all workers of miracles? Do all have gifts of healing? Do all speak with tongues? And, and they might have not realized that the answer to that is also going to be no, or, or is supposed to be no. Do all interpret the interpretation of tongues? And then he comes in and he says, love is more important than all of these things. That gets us into chapter 13. And it's, it's interesting, Chase, as you go through what he says love is and love isn't in verse four, 
Love suffers long, is kind, envies not, vaunts not itself, is not puffed up, does not behave itself unseemly, is not provoked, does not take account of evil. You can go back through the earlier chapters of First yeah. Corinthians, and, and most of the things he's saying about love that it's not are the things he said you Corinthians are. And the things that love is, they weren't. And so he's, he's, he's not just randomly giving, I'm going to give a little treatise on love here. He's saying your problem is a lack of love. Yes, exactly. And he goes on as he kind of ties this idea of love and spiritual gifts together. He talks about the fact, in my opinion, that these spiritual gifts are going to go away at some right. point. They're, they're part of them that are, that are, or there are certain of them that are just going to be gone after a while. Which is we know why part, love is more important, part. which is one of the reasons love is more important. Exactly. And so that's why I, I don't love the chapter break between 13 and 14, because as he's made his case, he begins chapter 14 with pursue love. If there's any spiritual gift you should want, it's that. Go after that. And so I'm not a huge fan of that right. um, chapter break, but yeah. Right. All right. So then we come to chapter 14. You mentioned that he says the spiritual gifts were going to go away, and they were, and they did. Yeah. Uh, but love was going to continue. However, at the time that he writes this letter in the middle of the first century, they are still needing these spiritual gifts and they're using them. So in chapter 14, he is going to give them some instructions about how they should be used in the church, meaning yeah. in the assembly when you come together. Yeah. And basically I'll sum it up this way. If no one's there to interpret the tongue, then you shouldn't be speaking in the tongue that it wouldn't make any sense for you to just be up there rambling on. In fact, he makes the case that that would be distracting and confusing. And in that case, you're not thinking about how to use your spiritual gift for the sake of edification. And so uh, he goes through various examples of that. He compares pro the gift of prophecy. Prophecy would be when I'm getting a direct revelation from God, and I speak it to others. I act as a mouth for God. Well, I can't right. do that. I don't have that gift. But some of them did. And he compares that with, with speaking in a tongue where I get a revelation from God in some language I've never studied, but miraculously I can speak in this other language. But if there's nobody to interpret it, what good does it do anybody else? Mm -hmm. If I speak as a prophet and I say in a language people can understand what has been revealed to me, that benefits them. And so in chapter 14, he underscores the point that the value in the church of using these gifts is the instructional value. Yeah. The, he says in verse uh, six, now, brethren, if I come to you speaking with tongues, what shall I profit you? Unless I speak to you either by way of revelation or of knowledge or prophesying or of teaching. And so he goes on and he makes the point that it's far better in the church to prophesy than to speak in tongues unless there's somebody who can translate what's been said yeah. in a tongue. And then he gives some instructions just about orderliness in using these gifts, doesn't he? Yeah. Um, and so I guess that would take place um, in verse 26 and 27, uh, 27 specifically. If anyone speaks in a tongue, it should be by two or at the most three and each in turn. So, uh, and one must interpret. But if there's no interpreter, he must keep silent in the church and let him speak to himself and to God. Uh, so if, if there's no one there who can interpret, just shut up. Just don't Very say anything. different than the holy roller kind of picture of what goes on in charismatic churches where yeah. everybody's going at the same time and nobody's making sense out of anything. They're just all exclaiming gibberish that you can't understand. And, and this is a 
this would be this would seem cold to some people today who practice spiritual gifts because this is orderly. This is taking turns. This is putting a limit on how many people do this. Let's read this. Verse 27. If any man speaks in a tongue, let it be by two, or at the most, three, and that in turn, take turns, and let one interpret. But if there be no interpreter, let him keep silence in the church. Let him speak to himself and to God. And let the prophets speak by two or three, and let the others discern. But if a revelation be made to another sitting by, let the first keep silence. For you all can prophesy one by one, that all may learn and all may be exhorted. Spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets. He goes on, he talks about the case women had spiritual gifts also. He says, even though women have spiritual gifts in the church, they shouldn't be speaking out because a woman is not speaking in the assembly. He right. makes that point. And, and then he says, let all things be done decently and in order. We have two chapters ago. We have two minutes, Chase. One yeah, minute. Chapter, chapter 15, Paul finds out some of them are not convinced that they're going to be raised in, in the last day. And Paul <laughs> makes it clear to them that that is that is stupid. Like the fact that you all believe that is not good. And so he is going to reassure them that Jesus did raise from the dead and that there are people that they can go talk to now that saw the risen Lord himself being one of them. He pointed that back out in chapter nine. And then he spends time talking about if Christ has been raised, then we are forgiven our sins and we too will be raised one day and we will no longer have a fear over death. Yeah. All right. So, so that's a, uh, that's probably a good place to stop in chapter 16 he is going to uh, talk about his plans to visit them and, and take some funds that they've been setting aside. He's urging them to set this money aside, and he's going to take these funds, uh, if they are so willing, uh, to needy saints in, in Jerusalem, and that ties in with some other letters. But we're out of time today. Um, thank you very much for your attention. There's a quick rush through of 1 Corinthians chapters 1 through 16. Thank you, Chase. That was fun. Thanks, Jeff. Bye-bye.